cancel culture controlled by women? It's a question that my guest on today's program has been asking for some time. And her conclusion is that yes, the phenomenon is driven by women and only women can stop it. Acting on this conviction, she has founded a community that online and in person has begun actively pushing back. Megan Daum is the author of six books, including The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. She's the host of the Unspeakable podcast and co-host of the podcast, A Special Place in Hell. She's also the founder of the Unspeakeasy, a community for free-thinking women. Megan Daum is my guest today on Lean Out. Megan, welcome back to Lean Out. Hi, Tara. Great to see you. Good to see you as well. Always nice to talk to you. Excited to talk today about women and cancel culture. What do you um, mean? What could you possibly mean? That's right. There is no cancel culture. Just no women not- either. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. <laughs> Around this time last year, I was driving from Toronto to Vermont for the inaugural off the record unspeakeasy retreat. And I was listening to your podcast interview with the British feminist Louise Perry on the way, on the drive. And you and Louise were talking about cancel culture being driven by women. This is the first time I heard that argument. It rang so true. Uh, The reputational damage, the outcast from the in-group. This is all very reminiscent of grade school culture. Um, When did you first start to notice that a lot of these Twitter pylons were initiated and driven by women? I kind of made the connection a couple of years ago, but I mean, even as back as maybe five years ago, I was thinking about this idea of toxic femininity. And I even wrote a piece about this. Um, if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about toxic masculinity, we have to recognize toxic femininity. Look, I, I don't think uh, I don't think I'm going on, on too much of a limb to, by saying that women and girls are a little bit more sophisticated and complicated with their communication uh, patterns. They can pick up on signals between one another that sometimes men can't. And um, yeah, I think cancel culture at its root has to do with an in-group, out-group dynamic that is very, very much paralleling what we see in middle school and in grade school. I would be hard pressed to think of a high profile cancel culture case that has been initiated by a man. Can you? Maybe a few, but nine times. I can't actually, I can't. I think it's a woman. (laughs) This idea of toxic femininity, it's it's a really, I think, important thread to pull here, this very female way of expressing aggression and and its impacts on public life as women have flooded into the workplace. It also disturbs me in that that cancel culture is a fundamentally unserious form of debate. Like sometimes when I read the takes on Twitter during these kind of mass hysterias, during these pylons, I'm just embarrassed. Like these are not serious arguments. The people making them know that they're not serious arguments. Like how how do you unpack that? Well, I think... Canceling somebody or lashing out at somebody online comes from a place of powerlessness, or at least thinking that you don't have power. So if you can't, if 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 you can't sort of get ahead or elevate yourself or help yourself 
through the normal channels, you're going to lash out at somebody and try to bring them down instead of bringing yourself up. Now, in some cases, people do, people are genuinely harmed or aggrieved. I'm not saying there aren't cases where women or other people in marginalized groups, quote unquote, I don't think women are a marginalized group, but obviously there are cases where there has been a real imbalance of power and people have abused their power. So we're not talking about that. Let's be clear. But a lot of this petty kind of stuff that you see online, this mob mentality, it comes from people wanting to signal that they're part of the group. And while I think we do see men wanting to do this, especially if they're trying to preserve their place at work or in a professional setting, it's it tends to be women. And I think that conversely, women who don't want to cancel people, who do want to speak out against some of these things and who do want to not be in lockstep with the group are reluctant to do so because they're very sensitive to the social penalties that come from other women for for stepping out and saying, hey, actually, I don't agree with this mob. I think something else. And so that's something that, as you know, I've been thinking about a lot and um, I'm really trying to push against in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to get to talking about your current project and how this is sort of an antidote to that. But 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 first, let's just talk kind of more broadly speaking about how this has all bled into our mainstream media, one of the themes of this podcast. So I, I'm thinking about a piece, a wonderful piece that you just wrote, which we republished at Lean Out about the coverage of the free press debate on the sexual revolution in LA, which you were at. Walk us through what you saw that night and how the coverage, again, mainly by by women, departed from what you yourself experienced at the event. So the free press, which is Barry Weiss's media empire, let's just call it that. It's a wonderful news organization. She has a podcast. She has a, a growing, um, it's there's, there's articles all the time. Um, it's a really exciting new media outlet. Barry organized a debate in Los Angeles. And the topic was, the question, central question asked was, has the sexual revolution failed? And so on one side were Louise Perry, who you just mentioned, um, whose book is called The Case Against Sexual Revolution, and Anya Kachin from the Red Scare podcast. They were arguing that it had failed. On the other side was my podcast partner on one of my podcasts, got to have two podcasts these days, Sarah Hader, and Grimes, of all people, the uh, the artist, the, the technopop artist, uh, Grimes. So there was, it was a really lively debate, very moderated. It was a wonderful evening. The comedian Tim Dillon opened up, hilarious set, 2,700 seat theater that was packed. Many, many issues were raised, really intelligent conversation. It was funny. It was engaging. Everybody was knowledgeable. It was just a wonderful evening overall. The crowd loved it. Lots of smart people there, all kinds of people. These were just not edgelords. As one of the uh, as, as one of the critics described it later, these were not just like um, e girls in plaid kilts or something like this. I don't even I had to look up what that meant. Anyway, I thought it was great. And then there were two articles at least. There was one in the Los Angeles Times and one in New York Magazine that described an event that I just simply hadn't been at. It was described as something for right wing journalists or an opportunity for everybody to further their their brands, that everyone was just being self-promoting. And what it really comes down to is I think there's, I call it Barry Weiss derangement syndrome. Well, let's, let's just be clear about that. I think that there is such a reflexive 
I would say fear of Barry Weiss and what she has created and just this need to kind of put her in this box as some sort of like alt-right or alt-right adjacent ideologue, which she's not at all. I mean, she is centrist, if anything. And I was just absolutely flabbergasted at the way the these journalists and others had gotten this event wrong. And it it's really making me crazy. I don't know about you. I do know about you. I know it makes you crazy too. It's just so, it's just so irrational. And the, the irrationality of it is what really, like I'm such a pragmatist. It just really bothers me when stuff is obviously it bothers me as a journalist when stuff is inaccurate, but also when these illogical, irrational sort of arguments are being made, it, it just irks me. Yeah. And look, I'm sorry to say it, but the Los Angeles times couldn't have filled half of that theater if they'd been giving the tickets away. So I just think that we're we're at a we've we've reached a point now where people are really really tired of this kind of artificial signaling in the media and wanting something that is that is honest and even if you don't agree with all the points being made I mean obviously if you go to a debate asking the question whether the sexual revolution failed you are not going to agree with everyone and by the way the side arguing that it, that it had not failed won the debate <laughs> my podcast partner Sarah Hader and her partner Grimes won the debate. So I really don't think that this is some kind of um, like, it, I think it's clear that this is not some kind of like right wing agenda being further. This is a pretty, a pretty mainstream event that has been sort of reframed as something to worry about. And I, I'm actually worried about the reframing. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to just kind of pull back now and just talk about this sort of quote unquote woke phenomenon and the discourse around it. There there is also indications that this discourse is driven by women. There's a massive political polarization taking place in which young women are getting more radically liberal and young men are getting more conservative. Thinking about the work of the American sociologist at Musa Algarbi on this. I interviewed Caitlin Moran last week for the Globe and Mail, and she was telling me about a Zoom talk for university students on International Women's Day, and the young men just weren't having any of it. Basically saying, we're always talking about girls, we're never talking about boys, feminism has gone too far. What do we make of that political polarization in this younger generation, and and why it's making young men so angry? I think it's an inevitable repercussion of probably 30 years at this point of initiatives to get women into places of power, to get them into higher education, to get them into STEM. And guess what? It worked. We have more women in college, graduating college than men. We have women across any number of metrics. They're buying their own homes. They're having babies by themselves. They are just succeeding. They are succeeding culturally and economically in the ways that men used to and no longer do. I mean, you talk about this on your show all the time. This is not going to be a surprise to your audience. So unfortunately, it's it's created this backlash and these guys feel really disenfranchised. Why are there still initiatives to get women into STEM fields or to get them scholarships or to elevate them when they've been elevated for for decades now why are these guys who can't get a job or feel or they 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 can't get ahead in life they're walking past like a sign on a kiosk saying this is something for women only only women can apply for this scholarship or 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 only women can take take advantage of this initiative and they're not getting anything and the women are already succeeding at much higher numbers i mean it can absolutely feel that way so 
I, I this it has to change because it's created this like manosphere. It's created this sort of I don't even want to call it alt right. It's something else. I mean, maybe there are there are a lot of alt right guys in this ecosystem, but there's just a lot of male anger that is at once understandable but quite dangerous and misguided, frankly. But it's not surprising. Mm-hmm. I kind of go back and forth on my views on feminism. I've I've always been a feminist, but sometimes I wonder. I mean, if if I think identity politics are totally counterproductive and feminism is a form of identity politics, like, is it time to move beyond that? Is it time to embrace humanism? Like, how do we unpack that? Yeah, I mean, I think we just need to help people generally. Humanism, I mean, whatever you want to call it. Richard Reeves speaks really eloquently about this. His book of Boys and Men raised a lot of great points. And I don't know if it's because he's British or just because he was able to thread the needle so beautifully in his book, but he's been getting a fair hearing about this. There are a lot of people from Christina Hoff Summers to Camille Paglia to Hannah Rosen to Louise Perry, uh, who've been talking about this stuff for a long time, but they usually get kind of pigeonholed as anti-feminist or kind of, you know, modern day Phyllis Schlafly's but but Richard Reeves got a fair hearing and I was really heartened to see that. You know, he talks about things like this concept of redshirting, which has to do with holding boys back a year. So they start school when they're a year older than than the girls. And that's because girls, their brains mature faster. They tend to do much better in school earlier. They can sit still where boys can't. So stuff like that. I think that's a good way of thinking about things. I know that's hard for a lot of people, but, and redshirting has, you know, typically been done so boys can, you know, grow bigger and do better in sports. But I think it's helpful to think about it in terms of intellectual development. So that would be one example, getting people into trade schools and vocations. And this idea that everybody has to go to college, that's really lined up with the initiatives around feminism to elevate girls. So you suddenly you have everybody should go to college. People are not getting vocational training as much. And because girls do so much better in school, I think the majority of valedictor- high school valedictorians are girls now um, at this point, like by, by a significant margin. So I think we need to start thinking about higher education in general. Who really needs it? Um, some people do, but it shouldn't be mandatory. Boys need to learn how to do things. You don't, you don't need to sit in your basement. The, the, the choices are not between sitting in your basement and going to an Ivy League school. There are a lot of things you can do, right? You could become a plumber, you could become an electrician. And guess what? Being a plumber pays a lot more than working for a nonprofit organization. So you should date plumbers. <laughs> you date those guys. Absolutely. And I also think in terms of this, thrust of making things less professional all the time. We should we should be taking journalism back to a trade. Like you don't need to go to school for three, four years to become a journalist. You really no. don't. You should go to school for 10 years to become a journalist. <laughs> no, you just go to a newsroom and start. Like yeah. it, it's just, it's crazy to me. Um, but let's talk a little bit about solutions now, because I think I think the unspeakeasy is doing something really unique. And I, I can say that because I experienced it firsthand. You know, when I drove to Vermont this time last year, um, and I don't mind saying this, I was at a point where I was feeling quite isolated. 
And, you know, a lot of my friends are not really big into politics. And there was a period after I left the CBC where I did feel isolated professionally. That has very much changed, by the way. But but so I arrive at this retreat. It is off the record. There's these amazing, smart, interesting women. And I was able to speak openly and say a lot of the stuff that I needed to say. It was really powerful for me. Talk to me a little bit about how you kind of came to this place of understanding that we need to gather and we need to start actively pushing against these kind of cancel culture tactics? Well, it's hilarious because I am the last person who ever thought she would start a women's community. I, I sometimes say uh, this is a this is a women's community for women who are afraid of women's communities. So I've been writing about culture war stuff for several years, as you know. I also teach writing. I teach writing classes that have nothing to do with politics. I teach memoir personal narrative nonfiction. I had a lot of women in my classes always. A couple of years ago, I was noticing that a lot of women were coming to my writing classes and they didn't even necessarily want to write. It was clear that they just wanted to talk about issues. They knew that I would provide a space where they could talk about whatever it was, whether it was censorship or the state of feminism or gender, or just, you know, they wanted to talk in a, in a complicated, honest way. And they knew they would be able to do it with me. And so I thought, hmm, why are we, why are we bothering with writing here? This isn't a writing class. We need like a discussion class. I was also noticing that a lot of the podcasters, um, like you and me and others, we have listener communities, but the listener communities were very male dominated. Like you would go to a Zoom hangout for persuasion. And I love these places, the fifth column. I love persuasion. Yasha Monk, who is, I know we've both talked to him recently. Um, it was like a bunch of guys and maybe a couple of women and the women weren't talking as much. And I thought, well, well, that is strange. We need a way for women to come together and talk about culture war issues and other war issues too, in a way that is safe. And so I created the unspeakeasy. So this is named after my podcast is called the unspeakable podcast. I have a book called the unspeakable. So the unspeakeasy seemed like like a, a really great way of saying like, this is this is an off the record space where we come together and I facilitate discussions and we have guest speakers and we really just get into things. So we have retreats. You came on the um, inaugural, the first official retreat we had in Vermont. Um, we, we never have more than 15 or so women. It's all off the record. And we go out usually for for three nights, four days, three nights, sometimes it's it's less. And it's been absolutely spectacular. There's all kinds of women who come. As you know, it's not all movers and shakers in any way. We have doctors and lawyers and people like you, but we also have small town librarians. We have graduate students. We've had women in their 20s all the way up to age 80. It's just absolutely remarkable. And now we have an online community that's um, membership-based and incredible forums in there. Uh, we bring in guest speakers. We recently had Kathleen Stock come in and do a, do a hangout with us. We have book clubs. And so it's been really incredible. And, and one of the, again, one of the reasons I started it was because there were women who were afraid of speaking up in their own book clubs, in their own peer groups. Facebook groups were melting down. I think I think at least half of the women who come to the Unspeakeasy found their way there because they had a meltdown in their book club. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's always some moment 
where they're like, oh, I don't know if I want to read Robin D'Angelo. Do, do we really need to read Robin D'Angelo, White Fragility in this book club? And then it's like, next thing they're ne- they know, they're out. So it's been it's been an incredible experience and it's just growing and growing. I mean, we did six, we're going to do six retreats this year. We're going to do six more next year. It's just been incredibly moving, as you know. And you were such a wonderful contributor. I just, I loved hearing what you have to say. I can't say what you said because it's off the record, of course. (laughs) Well, thank you. Um, two, two quick points. I mean, I think the book club thing is so fascinating because I think the book club is, is where you come face to face with just the bad quality of writing that is being published right now. Some of these quote unquote woke books are just very poorly written. And I, I, for a lot of friends that I have who are not political, their book club was the first moment they're like, well, wait a second, this is just like a, this is a bad book. Like, why is everyone (laughs) celebrating it? Um, so I just wanted to make that point, but also returning t- to Kathleen Stock, I think her story is is really interesting. So for listeners who don't know her, could you say a little bit about her story and and what she brought to the retreat? Kathleen Stock is a philosopher from the UK. She she's a lesbian, um, and she was just sort of an, a normal philosopher uh, going about her business. She's Gen Xer, so she's probably in her in her early fifties at this point. Um, maybe a little younger. And she started talking up, started talking about the gender issue. She started talking about how men and women are biologically different, that she supports trans people, that, you know, all of everything that we know about basic human rights, she, she supports. But that the idea of biological men saying that they are women is actually potentially dangerous for women and also just logically nonsensical. And she got absolutely piled on at her university. She she basically had to leave her job. She was a tenured professor and she was really fighting against these, um, these censorship inclinations on university campuses, especially her own. So she's become a major leader in the, the free speech world here in the US and in the UK, and just a real hero in terms of the way we talk about women, and and frankly, lesbians, because a lot of lesbians are now identifying as trans men, especially younger ones. And it's completely antithetical to the feminist project. And frankly, the movement is quite homophobic in a lot of ways. A lot of people, men and women, who are gay, young, young people, children even, are being facilitated into a transgender identity. And she's just encouraging us to, to look at that and, and speak honestly about that. So, so yeah, she came, she didn't come to a retreat. I want to be clear. She joined us in our online community. Uh, we do these hangouts every month where I bring somebody in and we have a conversation. But yeah, there's a lot of interest in, in gender topics in our community. That's by no means the only thing we talk about, but it's certainly... What, what brings a lot of women into our group. And I'm curious, I mean, just circling back to where we started talking about cancel culture, talking about the fact that it is driven by women. I really do think that is true. So if women are the drivers of it, how do you think the unspeakeasy is helping to specifically counter those trends? Yeah, I always say if women are driving cancel culture, it has to be women who stop cancel culture. We spend several days at unspeakeasy retreats 
talking about all kinds of things. I mean, we have had conversations about gun control that were led by a participant. In one case, we had a participant who was in, in a mass shooting. She was she was wounded seriously in a mass shooting about 15 or 20 years ago. And she still has very libertarian ideas about gun, gun rights. And she led this fascinating talk about that. And she talked to us about how she got to that place. We had a retreat in Minneapolis where there was a woman who was a cop. She was she was a St. Paul police officer. She'd been in law enforcement for a long time. She talked about what it was like to be in law enforcement in Minneapolis in the summer of 2020 around the George Floyd protests. We have had women talk about their own experiences in a way that enlightened us and also just made us feel that we weren't crazy and allowed us then to take what we talked about and learned in the retreat into the real world into our real lives and begin to speak up and say, hey, actually, I don't think this is so obvious. I think we should be allowed to ask questions about, about gender identity and ask whether children should be, should be affirmed by teachers and their parents not told what's going on. I think we should be allowed to ask these questions and push back on it. And it doesn't make me a bad person. And it doesn't make me a right winger, even though this is a non-political group. We have people on the right and the left in this group. And I think it's given people courage to just kind of conduct themselves in a normal, logical, transparent, courageous way. Um, the way we talked to each other 10 or 15 years ago, that's suddenly not allowed. And so people have actually, women have made real differences in their communities and in their lives. And it's just sort of allowed them to live in an authentic way that somehow it's just more and more difficult to do. And I, it's it's insane that we've gotten to this place. Mm. And the, the other thing that really strikes me as, you, as you're talking is this issue of emotional equilibrium. So you know this, as you're, as you're covering these issues, these are issues a lot of people won't tackle. It's very volatile, but it's also sometimes really maddening, as you say, because the level of the discourse is so off the rails a lot of the time. It's hard to maintain emotional equilibrium, and which I found that the effects of that retreat lasted for months and months because I did, it just brought the temperature down for me so much. And I, and I really do strive to just kind of stand in place and Yasha Monk also talks about this, of not becoming a reactionary. How do you think that kind of female community helps us to just maintain that equilibrium enough to even tackle these issues? I think that women need to know, and seems obvious, but I think we all need to remind ourselves that even if we don't agree on every point, we can still respect each other. We can be friends. We can learn from one another. I mean, there was one retreat where there were about just a big retreat. There were maybe 15, 15 or so of us. And we got into a conversation about abortion. And there were 15 different women with 15 different opinions about it. And people were sharing their own experiences. They were talking about their own abortions in some cases. It was very emotional. It was very personal. But it was profound because Everybody was getting tremendous value from this conversation. We had people all the way from there should be abortion on demand, that's what they believed, to people who thought that abortion should essentially not be allowed at all under any circumstances, or at least under very limited circumstances. Now, normally, 
if you had a group where those kinds of opinions were so far away from each other, it, it would it would fall apart. Can you imagine going to lunch with your friends and having such a diversity of opinion on that? that something bad would happen. <laughs> somebody would get mad. Somebody would start crying. Somebody would leave, or at the very least, everyone would leave, and there would be a whole bunch of back channel discussion, and there would definitely be some friendships ended. But in this case, the friendships were created. Everyone left with new friends and new perspectives on things and really just the feeling that they were not crazy and not alone. I think so many of us feel alone in this culture. Like I'm a bad person. There's something wrong with me. I'm missing something, but it's not that at all. If you're confused, then you're not missing anything because this is an incredibly confusing time. You know, I always say to my to my students, if you're not conflicted, you're either lying or you're not using your brain. We're always in conflict, but the the point is to embrace the conflict and learn from it and grow from it and actually create bonds with other people through that conflict. And it's just been a it's been a remarkable thing. Um, and uh, you know, I, I hope we can bring some men in at some point. Sometimes this is always going to be a women's community, but a lot of men want to get in on this. So uh, maybe someday we'll we'll have a have a big retreat for for everybody. But um, I think that that you know, women women need to lead us out of this of this cultural and intellectual mess that we're in. Are you optimistic right now? I mean, Yasha Monk was tweeting last week. Have we reached peak woke quote unquote? Uh, have we reached peak cancel culture? Are are we finding our way out of this mess? I think so. I think it's going to be a while. I don't think it's going to be tomorrow, but more and more of us are talking about it. I think it's essential that people who are not on one political extreme or the other talk about it. You know, I, I I always say, and I talked about this a lot in my in my last book, The Problem with Everything, if the smart, thoughtful people don't speak up, the stupid, thoughtless people are happy to do the job. The problem with so many of these discussions is that the people who are the loudest are the most extreme and they are the most off-putting. And it's almost like the smart people are smart enough to keep their mouths shut. Like they say, well, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get involved in this. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my friends. This is beneath me. There's more important things to think about. Um, arguably cancel culture, whatever that means is not the biggest problem that we're facing, but it's, it's integral to, to fixing the problems that we face. I mean, there's a lot of really, really complicated issues out there, whether that's to do with climate or crime or just go go down the list, right? Just politics generally, public health. You can't solve these issues without being honest about what the problems are. You can't even begin to address them if you're afraid to say the, the truth about them. And so in order to even get there, we have to say we're gonna stop, we're gonna stop canceling people for asking the necessary questions and stating the obvious truths. So I think it's you know, in some ways, cancel culture, it is, it is, we, we, we can't solve the problems that we need to solve until we stop this particular phenomenon. Well, Megan, it's always such a pleasure to get to talk to you. And I'm, I'm so thrilled about the work that you're doing with the unspeakable and the unspeakeasy. I think these are really important projects. And uh, I just thank you for coming on. Well, thank you so much, Tara. I, I love talking with you and, and come back to an unspeakeasy. We love having you.
Lean Out is hosted by myself, Tara Henley. This week's episode is produced by Harrison Lohman. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.